Welcome to Relevant Parties by Carhartt Work in Progress. I'm Charles Ravens, and in this series, I'm going behind the scenes at some of the world's best independent record labels to meet the visionaries and the obsessives who've made musical history. In each episode, we sit down with one of these label founders to find out what makes them tick. We hear the tall tales and big ideas behind some of the most influential records and scenes of the past 30 years, and maybe try to work out just what possessed them to take on one of the most challenging jobs in the music industry. Matt Black and Jonathan Moore are united by a love of the new. They're technophiles through and through, and since the 1980s, their success has been closely linked to their endless innovations in the arenas of electronic music and digital technology. Ninja Tune Records was founded by Matt and John in 1991 as their escape route from a bad brush with the mainstream music industry. And it's always been a place for eccentric experiments at the fringes of hip-hop, dance and electronic music. By the time they founded Ninja, they'd already produced chart hits with Yaz and Lisa Stansfield, along with an iconic remix of Eric B and Rakim's Paid in Full. But it was their own music, as Cold Cut and as part of DJ Food, that really put them on the map as pioneers of sampling and audiovisual technology. Among other high-tech breakthroughs, Matt and John invented a piece of software called VJAM, which could trigger audio and visual samples simultaneously, thereby inventing the art of VJing. And over the years, NinjaTune has released apps, CD-ROMs, hardware effects units, and all kinds of cutting-edge audiovisual projects. Musically, the label's foundations lie in hip-hop and in the sampling culture that exploded around it in the 1980s. But they've always been drawn to musical outsiders, artists who plough their own furrow. The early years introduced the world to after-hours music from Amon Tobin, Mr. Scruff, The Herbalizer, and The Cinematic Orchestra. And more recently, they've put out records by The Bug, Floating Points, Young Fathers and Marie Davidson. And the label has had several successful spin-offs, including Big Dada and the dance floor dedicated label Technicolor. So what all of that means is that there is far, far too much in the ninja story to attempt to cover in one sitting. And even in this long conversation, there were huge chunks that we couldn't even touch. So let me remind you that the Relevant Parties playlist on Spotify has tons of Ninja Tune classics and gems, which you can dip into at your leisure. And right now, Matt and John dial in from their respective homes in the Cotswolds and in London to take us on a journey into sound. Talking about sampling, hip-hop, clubbing in the 90s, the invention of VJing, and making one of the greatest remixes of all time. John and Matt, hello and welcome to Relevant Parties. Hello. Hello. So I thought we'd start not so much at the beginning, but with a slightly sideways entrance, because I was thinking about the various things that make Ninja Tune what it is, make it a kind of unique project, a unique label. And I was thinking a little bit about how the 90s was this time when a lot of previously high tech gear had filtered down to everyday people. You had sampler sequences, people had personal computers, and then combined with the turntablism legacy, I guess, it seems very clear to me that there's something about the 90s and the music that you guys were involved in quite early on where it's clear how the technology shaped the era it's clear how the technology and the sounds went together 
I think Ninja Tune was obviously on that cutting edge, but not only musically, but also visually. And I wanted to talk to you first about VJing, because it's something that you were pioneers of, in a sense, and also that doesn't really exist in the same way now, that it was very much a kind of thing that was happening at that time and that's perhaps developed into other ideas. So could you just take us back to that era and maybe lay out the kind of connections that you were making at the time between music and visuals and this new idea of VJing? What is that? I can speak to that. But John, I'd be quite interested to hear your take on visuals and music because actually both of us have always had a keen interest in art and visuals and that's been a natural complement to the music. Do you want to fill that in a bit, John? Yeah. For me, the interesting thing, well, there's kind of three reasons, really, the art thing that Matt alluded to. The second reason being something to hide behind in some respects when we were playing live. So a cloak, you know, we became the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. So that's that aspect. And I think also it developed that there was a similarity in us wanting to take back control with our recorded work with Ninja in a similar way having had the experience of making pop videos, there was a desire, even if it wasn't necessarily 100% conscious, that desire to reclaim the ability to make our own videos. So would you mind as well, for anyone who is perhaps not as familiar or perhaps born in this century, um, (laughs) what exactly were you doing with VJing at the beginning? Um, Because there's a particular track, isn't there, Timber, which really kind of blew people's minds a bit at the time about what you were doing with music and visuals lining up together? So Stuart Warren Hill, who's the guy we put that piece together with, had this phrase, what you see is what you hear. And I think that's quite a good sort of key into this. We wanted to provide a visual analogy for the music, but more than that, to actually connect sound and vision streams together. But if you rewind a bit to before Timber, I went to Selfridges and saw an Amiga there, which was running a demo called the Juggler, which was a little, just a couple of seconds long, a loop of a 3D juggler on a green and yellow plane. And uh, I looked at it and I thought it was a sort of almost photorealistic 3D cartoon. And I thought, well, that means you could make a a film on the desktop, computer graphics film. And so I bought an Amiga and I started messing around with it and always liking the technology and the toys and sort of using those to push forward with things. I acquired some other bits which you could plug into that. One of them was a frame grabber which meant that you could sample short bits of video and then start looping them, painting on top of them, analogous processes to what we were doing with sound. So we found that you could extend the techniques and aesthetics that we were doing with cut-up music to visuals as well. You could synthesize visuals, you could sample visuals, you could loop them, you could process them. And actually, over the last 25 years, playing with that those ideas has been very fruitful. And Timber is a good example of that and other works that we've done in you know, our live show also became kind of based on, on that idea. So in a nutshell, it was applying the ideas of hip-hop to visuals as well. Of course, hip-hop's always had visuals in the form of graffiti and also dance as well. So it's a strong, vibrant culture, hip-hop, because it has these different pillars that it can stand on with the graph, the rap, the beatboxing, the turntablism. And uh, yeah, I think our fascination with that was a way into adding visuals to the music and um, as John said, I think we were always happier behind a big mound of equipment rather than at the front of the stage. And um, <laughs> you know, coming from the sort of uh, London party environment, it wasn't necessarily about looking at the DJ. It was about the audience looking at each mm-hmm. other and looking around the venue and there were always um, backdrops and light shows and bits of sculpture and slide projections. And actually, this has its roots 
in the 60s and beyond when the Velvet Underground used to project onto the band and uh, Jimi Hendrix you'd have on the bill at the Fillmore with Joshua Light Show right there on the bill as well realising that that was part of the entertainment so part of the experience so you know there was nothing really new here but what we did was we were able to jump into as you mentioned the availability of cheap electronic equipment digital and other electronic equipment became a lot more accessible and we were able to use that in a kind of punk hip-hop way to explore these ideas. And you actually developed some software yeah, to do that, that right? that was called VJAM. You know, that came after Timber because Timber was actually put together frame by frame in, in Premiere. Um, oh, and wow. that was a very painstaking process, which Stuart did most of, you know, it's a very... <laughs> um, and it's a timeline approach as well. And what we wanted was a way of performing that live and also composing in a more free way because just editing on a timeline is quite restrictive and it was what we were used to though wasn't it in some respects with c lab creator which was a music software program that we first started using and then moved to various other ones and also with ableton there's quite still a linear aspect of the way that we sort of learned those tools and wanted to escape from that so again that uh, ability to change that and break that timeline and perform it fairly randomly and do it on the fly yeah. as well yeah but, i mean you know again relating it back to hip-hop the, the scratch dj a couple of turntables and a beatbox that's a lot more of a flexible way of playing with chunks of sound and playing the piano for instance which is something that neither john and i have any any chops at so we were more happy with the coming from the <laughs> dj point of view so vjam was a kind of mashup of all these ideas really and that was quite widely used right people were pick, picked up people to use for their it, sets and i too. still get people coming up and say yeah. you know they got really into that and that was an entry point for them into visuals and music um although having said that mm. it it's quite interesting that our attempts to become kind of software developers uh, and make that a business were it was a very difficult process it didn't didn't really work out in fact and it was you know it was a bit of a a source of uh, friction at Ninja Tune about whether we should even be getting into this, trying to be a software developer and distributor when we knew nothing about how to get those boxes into computer shops. <laughs> um, and in fact, we ended up with quite a few copies of VJAM in the warehouse for many years. But sometimes it's not about the, the number of quantity that you sell. It's about those ideas spreading out and being taken up by influencers in a way creative influences before that term came about it, it did have quite an impact i know that because people still tell me about it yeah. so i think as mm. uh, as helping spark up this new uh art form it that was a, a good contribution to it yeah we you know creating the ecosphere the growing stuff where you can be part of that is quite an important thing i think for, for us and for the moment in and if you, I don't know if you were perhaps going to come to this, but it's quite interesting to contrast where we were then with VJing and where we are now. You know, going to a, an underground squat party with a car boot full of VHS machines, a little TV monitor literally rented from radio rentals um, and a Panasonic video mixer, which was used to normally to edit wedding videos together and <laughs> wiring it all up with an Amiga and, and then an Epsom video projector which again is meant for office presentations not to be sort of providing visuals to blow people's minds in a underground party um it was great fun <laughs> um but that remained underground for quite a long time and promoters and club owners were not all that keen on adding an extra cost by paying a vj right if you wanted to do it and cart that projector down there yourself so the vj was the kind of poor cousin for <laughs> quite a long time but and really it took 20 20 25 years but eventually 
that battle's been won. If you go to many types of event now, especially festivals with big electronic acts on, you will see visuals as an important part of the show. So I feel that we've, we've won in the end, that it's been recognised that electronic visuals and electronic music go very well together and it, it makes sense and it gives people a better sensory and entertainment experience. So um, it, it's, it's nice to see that uh, it has come through. So it seems that really you've always been up for trying new things, trying new technology, trying new formats. Um, I was just looking through the history of different types of releases. You've had uh, an app, like an actual music making app, um, CD-ROMs, and all these kind of out there designs for box sets and limited vinyl. There was the version of Visionist's album a few a few years ago now, where you have to, you had to actually cut it open to get the full set of material inside right there were prints inside which i like it's like a challenge to the discogs mindset of like oh am i gonna destroy the thing in order to have the thing i quite like that could you tell me maybe a bit about some some of your favorite releases that you've done in that vein to give a sense of the types of uh, experiments you were willing to try out with your records i think my favorite one still is a floppy disc that we gave away with samples from um, one of the DJ Food albums. Was it Volume 2, Matt? I can't remember now. I'm not sure, but yeah, they, the DJ Foods used to have sample collections. So we put some of them on the S900 Akai floppy disk. <laughs> and because, you know, that was something that people were using. And that was a nice sort of nod to the, the forthcoming information age, if you like. I think uh, Eric... Kid Koala is a wonderful, playful artist and has done all kinds of innovative and fun stuff. And I think he wasn't the John a sort of rubber band powered turntable that you could build from yeah. one of his. Uh, I'm sure you've got that in your yeah. collection. Yeah, I have. Um, yeah, that's another cracker. That was a cracker. Um, so, you know, we do. Colcut did this record, Let Us Play. And that was the one that had the CD ROM, which you mentioned there, which came with various what we call play tools. Not just, you know, the, we like toys and we like toys especially where you can take and actually use them as instruments and uh, there's a few like that in the Colca armory and ninja from the beginning have had quite a playful attitude we might not be quite as conventionally cool as some record labels but i think in the end it's cooler to be to have fun and not take yourself too seriously so i think that's part of um of ninja's character and that that's you can see that in some of the some of the releases i mean i i'm proud of that cd-rom that we did with the let us play uh, it had videos on it. It had the playtime, which was a sort of algorithmic AI random beat generator. And then there was the cold cut um, A to Z, which was a kind of dictionary, interactive dictionary of our jargon and kind of ninja speak. <laughs> and uh, the ninja knowledge, the quiz. Um, so we wanted to give people more, really, and present ourselves. I, we used to describe ourselves as a multimedia pop group, you know, trying to just bust out of just being <laughs> DJs or just being being producers. Yeah, there's an interesting point on, I think, with that release, by including so much stuff, we disqualified ourselves from the charts, mm. if I remember correctly. So, you know, we <laughs> even though we'd been through the process previously, <laughs> being signed to a major label and understanding that there was this thing called the charts and there were limitations on the amount of formats that you could actually put out or use... But uh, I think we managed to, you know, subconsciously forget that and just went ahead with the release and, you know, didn't get our figures. I remember the, the, it did come up, actually. It's like, well, guys, if you put this video on the CD, then you're not going to be eligible for the charts. We were like, fuck it, we want to do it. 
let's just ignore that. We're not going to be top of the charts <laughs> anyway. We're more into doing what we what we want to do. So, um, yeah, renegade. So, I, I, we never sort of fitted into the box. I mean, even now, cold cut, we don't fit in quite into the box either. Even I've noticed with the sort of you know, there's the brilliant acts like Orbital and Chemical Brothers and Left Field and so on. We sort of even don't fit in with them, even though, well, in fact, we were a little bit before them, I guess. They were the sort of next wave in, which was, was when Rave, the Rave thing really, really took off. But yeah, we've, John and I, we've never fitted in. We don't even fit into Ninja Tune. <laughs> uh, even our own yeah. tribe, we're, we're oddballs in there. But then Ninja Tune is a collection of oddballs, so it kind of works. I want to ask a little bit about your backgrounds because I can find out, I found out a fair bit about where you met and that kind of, those sorts of early days, but I don't really know much about what you were into before you met. Um, but I do think that perhaps you both have somewhat artistic backgrounds. Is Correct. that right? Yeah. I went to what was then um, High Wycombe Technical College, um, which is now, I think, Buckingham College, uh, University. So they had an art department there and foundation course three-dimensional design based course so i left school at 15 and went there and did two years foundation and then three years uh, bachelor of arts in three-dimensional design so yeah and then djing and making stuff and teaching and then i met matt so you were sort of on your way to making art or being a designer or something like that yeah i wanted to be a jewellery designer at first when I was at school, but then reality came up against uh, ability. (laughs) (laughs) And what I could work out in my head, I couldn't make. So I wanted to make some weird shit, and at college I had to make a teapot, and it would take me a week to make a teapot, whereas it would take some other (laughs) student three days. And my, I, I'd want to design the teapot, not, you know, not just like make a teapot out of a book and stuff. So it was quite a formative college for me in terms of realizing that you don't necessarily fit in. I think you could probably write a thesis on people that have been to art school, got into a massive fucking argument with the authorities there and then worked out that actually yeah. they were much better off doing their own thing and made a success out of it, probably more than the people who towed the line, actually. My dad was an art teacher. Mm. He was an artist, actually. He was a sculptor, printmaker, right. um, and painter. Although Dad said you shouldn't, he didn't like to describe himself as an artist. He preferred, preferred printmaker or sculptor. So an artist is something that perhaps other people can describe you as, but you shouldn't describe yourself as an artist, which was quite interesting. He wasn't. Um, <laughs> he considered that self-promotion was vulgar and not what an artist should do. And um, I think his career as an artist suffered actually. I haven't been quite so worried about that, <laughs> which is part of the spirit of our age, I guess. But I also came from quite an artistic uh, family. Well, that, that sorry, my, my background was that my family was quite artistic. My dad was a sculptor. My grandfather on my mum's side was a, an architect and designer. But my other granddad was a professor of neurology. So I had quite an interesting art and science mixture. I was mm. lucky to have that. Um, and as kids, my sister and I were very much encouraged to draw and paint and express ourselves and stuff and so lucky to come from a sort of slightly bohemian comfortable middle class background where I had some access to freedom and was encouraged to express myself Mm. yeah similar background to me my parents were both teachers my mum was an art teacher and my dad was a geography teacher 
they very much believed in that late 60s Danish model of education of allowing you to kind of find your way. You know, at 15, when I announced to them that I wanted to go to art college, there was no, like, free care. Two days later, Dad said, I've got you an appointment to see the some this chap at the art college to see if you like it. <laughs> you know, similar backgrounds, aren't we, really? Yeah. Right, in many respects. It's a lot of what they call propinquity there, which is an interesting word, which sort of means what you have in common. And people tend to have relationships with people. The more propinquity you share, the more likely you are to have a relationship with someone, which can be great, but it can also leave one in a filter bubble as well and, you know, not uh, have enough exposure to people outside one's comfort zone. Yeah, I think that's probably some background in common that's probably helped John and I get together and form and have such a constructive relationship. And what sort of thing was in your filter bubble at the time that you met? What were you both really into? And and tell me about your meeting and how this sort of meeting of minds occurred. I was into DJing warehouse parties and making jewellery and working in a record shop. So I was making jewellery out of what I could find, like scrap stuff, recycling stuff, and selling it to Liberties and Heels and the Conrad shop to make some money, and then working part-time in a record shop. This was after I'd given up teaching, so I was part-time teaching three-dimensional design before that. But I think I'd stopped, hadn't I, Matt, by the time I met I think so. Ah, no, I think you you were just winding it up then still, mate. I could have been just winding it up. So uh, I was very much into James Brown and rare groove and funk and breaks and hip hop, house music and just generally music, really, uh, in terms of collecting records, listening to music, DJing, playing parties. John was um, actually quite well known on the London warehouse scene. And there was a definite scene in London in the mid 80s. And Norman Jay uh, was another figure on that scene. And other DJs on KISS like Colin Dale, Colin Favour, Paul Anderson, um, Jazzy B. You know, it was quite a London Illuminati, which I wasn't actually really part of initially. Um, but John was on KISS FM, which was the kind of centre in a way of that scene. And then I managed to get on with John's help to get on later. Uh, in common, I think I can mention, John, we were also into getting high you know, (laughs) quite seriously. And that and and music were the two sort of passions, really, that I think we had in common. What was your ideal cocktail of of high and music? Just a fat spliff and some some rare groove records with some good breaks on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and knowing that you had a record that, you know, most people couldn't couldn't get and you could maybe throw it down at a, a party. You know, that whole thing of searching, of digging, searching for breaks, the record shops going through quite, you know, a time consuming process. But when you put your hand on something and you put it on the deck or you got sometimes you weren't sure you might buy something just because it looked good and your nose told you there might be something good here. You get home, you stick it on the deck and then the record starts off with a guy going, this is a journey into sound. Like, (laughs) woohoo, we're on to a winner with this one, you know. Um, but that John and I really bonded over decks, parties, black music and trying to do something, trying to play with music to take it not to just be a, say a disc jockey plays records, a DJ plays with records. We were into DJing, which was taking it further. John used to make these rather cool little cassette cartridges, not being able to afford a professional cartridge machine. Do you want to say, John, your cassettes? Yeah, I discovered that you could unscrew um, these C15 cassettes that you would buy to put um, computer code on to upload a game to your computer or whatever. So they were nice and short and cheap, and I'd unscrew them and cut the leader tape off and then reattach the leader tape and screw them back on together, and then I could record jingles. I say jingles. I would pause button 
record things off record. And then I'd use those on the radio show or when I was DJing as well sometimes. You know, so that a cassette player, the first gigs that I warehouse parties I did, I had one turntable that I'd made myself, which was a Garrett kit. Wow. I made it myself. <laughs> and a uh, pair of speakers, Keck transmission line speakers that I'd made myself as well and made all the boxes for them. And uh, a cassette machine and a de- cheap sort of delay machine and a DJ mixer, which I've still got, actually, the DJ mixer, which is, was a really good mixer, stupidly <laughs> expensive at the time. And, you know, that was my setup. And based on a reggae setup, really, at that time, I was heavily influenced by that as a technical idea because I could cope with that being fairly dyslexic. <laughs> um, I could manage. So that was part of the excitement as well, was like building your own setup and trying to get information John, you know, the reggae scene, they used to have echo chambers and sound effects. We were into always into having sound effects as well. I remember us uh, about, it's only about 12, building a siren circuit. Dub out siren. Of, uh, a dub siren, exactly. And I right. built it into an old 70s plastic radio box of my granny's. <laughs> and um, that was a, a thrill. Using technology in a sort of cool way, not really knowing what we were doing, but with some ideas and references. I, similar to John, actually, I, me and my mates, this was when I was 14. I, even though John's a bit older than me, I can claim probably to have been DJing for longer because I started when I was 13. Um, <laughs> me and my mates had a little geeky crew of friends at school and we saw two old turntables and this big speaker outside the third year tutor's office. And we said, what's this? And he said, oh, the youth club are throwing it out. And we said, well, we can, can we have it? And he said, well, five quid and it's yours. So we bought a whole DJ setup for five quid. Two nice. crappy old decks, but in a wooden case, someone had made them, you know, different ones. And then this one big speaker and, and an amp. And so we started doing discos at school off the back of that. So I can say <laughs> I've been DJing for, for 46 years and I'm still not very good at it. But <laughs> So what was the exact circumstances of your meeting? You were working in the record shop. I was working in the record shop, yeah, at Reckless Records in Berwick Street Market. Yeah, which still exists, right? It still exists, mm, yeah. One of I the few from that era that's probably still there, yeah. I reckon. And so, you know, I was supposed to be earning money there, really. But, <laughs> but um, you were spending I, it all on new records. Yeah, yeah, you know, I would often end up paying money at the end of the month rather than receiving. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I you know, used to buy records from all over the place, I found quite often, you know, boxes of really interesting funk records, which I would play on Kiss on the radio station, might give Norman Jay a copy or Jay Strongman a copy, and then they would play it, and then people would come asking for it at the record shop, and, you know, I'd buy a bag of 10 for a pound and sell them at a fiver each or whatever <laughs> to provide... provide to feed uh, your habit. <laughs> my habit, my vinyl habit. But it's not only vinyl habit, unfortunately. <laughs> but John was John was actually manager managing Reckless Records, and I was a customer there. I right. was one of the guys who used to come in and dig through the racks looking for records. And so the great thing about record shops about is that you know you meet heads there, meet the other heads, and that was certainly true in Reckless Records. And we bonded over you know double dean steinsky and trouble funk and the things that it was quite niche still at that time so we recognized each other as kindred spirits and then we were into these records by double dean steinsky and we said you know why why don't we do something like this and we both made attempts to do something but it was when we met each other and i came in i had a, a rough mix so I, I wanted to 
didn't know what to do with. I played it to John to get his reaction. He was like, yeah, this is wicked. We should put this out. So that became the first cold cut record. So the journey between you meeting and hanging out and listening to records and digging for records and you being like on top of the pops is extremely short, it seems to me. That's right. Um, Could you sort of just strap us in and, and do that part of the journey, which seems unbelievably rapid, but it happened. So first thing is we get our mix on cassette. We take it to Jar Tolly's in East London. We said, we put the Matrix Dodgy One on it. He says, no, don't do that. You might get in trouble. Call it DG001. We go off to uh, <laughs> Acton, to this incredibly Dickensian record-pressing place, give false names, pay them 500 quid and end up with a box of 512s of, say, kid, what time is it? Say, kids, what time is it? We burn the Matrix numbers off with a soldering iron so it can't be traced to us and doesn't look like it's from the UK. And then John starts selling them in Reckless Records at 15 quid a copy, normal British release with two or three pounds a copy. So that worked really well. Yeah, I used to drive around to the different record shops and where did you say what did you say about it did you say it was some cool new you know american we kind of pretended that i got it from america (laughs) dj uh, cold uh, cut from this dj cold cut guy (laughs) uh, because there was such a snobbery going on you know even i bought into it you know in some respects now in retrospect i realize that but there was a real weird thing about uk black music versus American black music, particularly within the sort of jazz and soul and hip-hop at that point, with some people, you know, that's a whole discussion in itself. This is a time when America was leading. We hadn't yet reached peak America, which we seem to have now. And, um, yeah, it was America, exclusive, expensive, hard-to-get-good. UK can't really be bothered, so we badged it as an American record. But to sketch in that time after that, there's just, like, really do it to zip through it you know that record started getting reviewed suddenly we were being mentioned in the press the mystery about where it came from sort of built up then it was revealed it was john and me we um got invited to do we put out a couple of other cut-up records and again just pressed them ourselves sold them independently um and then we came to the attention of big life who were a little label who were astonished that we were managing to sell two or three thousand copies of our our own record from with nothing basically and so jazz summers sort of dialed us in got us to do a remix of the the society they were called wasn't it john and then um said well i'm working with this uh young singer called yaz do you want to do something with her and um didn't mention that he was actually married to her which was a bit shady of him um and uh in the meantime we got asked to do this uh paid in full mix for fourth and broadway so that was really the one which blew up and got us on the cover of the NME, even though we only got paid 750 quid for doing it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, suddenly we were on the cover of the NME. So obviously John and I were major music fans. The NME was like the Coolsters Bible, basically. So this was a kind of incredible level up. Kiss FM was gathering a lot of steam as well. And then, you know, we made this record. First, it was Doctor in the House with Yaz singing on it, which was over a sort of pretty crazy mixture of hip hop and house and acid house and samples and suddenly we're on top of the pops with Yaz we did fall out with Jazz Summers very badly and he's passed on now I think in retrospect he engineered part of that success I think left to ourselves we wouldn't have necessarily had that entry point to the big picture music business and you know that has its own huge story as well but the next thing after that was suddenly we actually was John invited me to Case to Soul Weekender 
Do you want to say a bit about that, John? It's quite an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, Caste was a, was a big black music festival, and it's quite strange because actually there's a lot of controversy at the moment about comments that uh, the guy that owns Caste owns the brand was made on social media, and it was always a strange conundrum because there was always black music, but there was also a very white working class audience that would go there, and I didn't really fit in. But I enjoyed playing there and I would play in what they termed the alternative room. So Matt came with us and we were the first DJs there to do two turntables. I think we took the cassette player as well, didn't we, and did that. And we played there and, you know, this was really pre-house blowing up. I actually played a house record at one Caster event. I think this was the one just before Matt played with us. And the bouncer came over and tried to wrestle me and the record from the turntables because... Somebody somewhere didn't approve of it. It was called What's That by the Browns. And it's a pretty raw record. It's an amazing record. So it was an odd thing. And then they did it. They used to have a good lineup there, right? Giles Peterson would be there playing his Latin to Bob Jones, who was a friend of John's. And was was Bob on Kiss at that point, John? No. He did join later on. You know, Bob Jones was a central soul authority basically you know if you're into soul music he was the doctor and bob played this record by otis clay called the only way is up i don't know how it quite came about but john and i looked at each other and somehow sparked up the idea this is fantastic we could let's do something with this and so we ended up doing a cover version with yaz singing on it and it became this huge record that was number one for six weeks it took a long time to get right actually it's part of the story as well you know it might seem easy, but at the time we literally sweated blood to get that right. And Big Life would come out of the studio at like eight in the morning, having been up all night, completely rinsed. But we thought we've got it. We'd give it to Big Life and then we'd crash out. <laughs> and then in a few hours time, the phone would ring and they'd say, guys, yeah, we think it's great, but we, we think it can be better. We want you to go and do it again. Oh. I'd be like, fuck you. Don't you? you know, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're killing ourselves here. We just want to mix and go. Um, but actually, they were right. And I think we did that yeah. three times before we came up with a version which became this huge thing. So sometimes you really do have to sweat blood to get it to that, push that needle up to where it can be. So then that, that's, in a nutshell, the, the story of that. Um, that was like a, you know, an 18-month period that took us from just being cool London underground dudes to being on top of the pops and being a sort of name. You mentioned very briefly there the uh, Seven Minutes of Madness version of Paid in Full by Eric B. and Rakim. And I think, I mean, I think that's regarded by a lot of people as just hands down one of the great remixes ever. Um, and I was curious a little bit about the the making of that and how it fits in with hip hop at the time, because I think it's, it's easy to forget now that hip hop is is so dominant, has been so dominant for so long. But hip-hop was still um, relatively novel at the time, I guess, and hadn't really established itself as more than than a fad even at that point, possibly. Um, tell me a bit about the making of that and perhaps your sort of relationship with hip-hop at the time and, and I guess how you felt when you were making it, if you were kind of, if you felt aware of how totally new that that sound was, because it must have sounded really fresh and almost quite alien i think yeah it was it was an, you know being asked to do it was a, a wow moment for us because you know eric being wrecking were considered by our crew the people at the time as being 
pretty much top notch. And how to put it, it's difficult really because it was a whirlwind mm, of doing it. I bet. And there was no 24 track tape, there was no a cappella. I think they asked us how many copies of the record that we wanted. So we had this technique where we would record, I suppose you could equivalent in recording terms now, but a click, but we would make, we made a loop from the loop, which is, um, Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers track, Ashley's Roach Clip. It's the original. So actually what's become known almost to some people as a soul to soul break. In fact, that's where it stems from. Hmm. And, uh, we worked with the engineer, Rain of Shine, and she was a fantastic engineer, actually quite an important thing and um, unusual again at that time to have a female engineer and she introduced us to to this bit of kit called the bell so long story short you could get a loop into that so we laid down this loop probably more than seven minutes onto one track on the 24 track and then started mixing stuff over the top of that and building it up so like a collage in, in many respects and trying different things out and you know some of these kind of ideas like the opera heart Hazar, you know, we'd played that in clubs before over other records. And when we were doing radio shows, we would often play spoken word stuff. We had these jingles that we'd made. So the, we had our armory and we went into Island Studio. Is it the same mixing desk that one of the Bob Marley albums was recorded on, wasn't it? If I remember rightly. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I, it was, um, yeah, Island Studio. So there'd been some, you know, great music recorded there. I think we were in there for like three days, weren't we? That was it. Much, I think it was, it? A, it was a two day, two days and a night. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, and that was it. And yeah, there were some fortuitous moments when we put the Opera Hazard sample on there. Matt pitched it down to minus eight on the Technics turntables, which is the slowest that it can go, and it was perfectly in time and perfectly in tune. <laughs> and so, bosh, you know, that was in. And there were some moments where our, I suppose our British kind of sense of humour and, and sort of glee came out. So there were, you know, little samples that we put in there, quite cheeky lifts. You know, surprising, really, that we got away with it. I still am amazed that Ireland went for it. But that was a lot of fun doing that. And it was, that offer Hazar is probably our most notorious sample. That was John's discovery. I think we should um, mention John Peel as well, because yeah. he was an absolute Don who inspired our generation, but actually several generations of music lovers, particularly in the UK. He, he sort of, I think, flew the flag that it was cool to be into a lot of different sorts of music. Then when we discovered hip-hop and scratch mixing, DJ mixing, that was a way that you could take a lot of different sorts of music and mix them all together. So it's a kind of John Peel attitude towards syncretism and having a, having a, a wide kind of set of ears really for what you could listen to and enjoy and then actually the techniques of mixing those sound sources together and making something new out of it that's really what we we, we were powered by so the next few years are i guess quite formative because essentially you have some time attached to big life and then at some point decide that you're going to go it alone and set up a label to kind of condense that into a, a brief description of that of that time when I know that quite a lot of things happened um you toured Japan I think could you just explain why it made sense for you to to kind of go it alone set up Ninja Tune and be on your own path separate to any kind of major label world yeah, well, you can ask the sausage what it feels like when it comes out of the machine. <laughs> You're lucky if you still got a shape. 
<laughs> uh, that bad. Well, it's all very well to sort of, you know, feel sorry and beat one's chest and go how terrible it was. But John and I were pretty naive and the music business can be quite brutal. And um, we ended up getting quite shafted and our escape from it after our visit to Japan where we came across the Ninja concept was to form Ninja Tune as our multicoloured escape pod and blast off and leave those music business business uh, suckers behind and do return to where we'd started, which was being 100% independent, coming up with different identities, doing what we wanted, having fun, releasing the music that we wanted and not being responsible to some other bastard in some office who wanted to crank the sausage machine handle. So that was the start of Ninja Tune. <laughs> Thinking about some of the artists that you released in the in the first era which i mean even the first era i guess takes us almost to the, the year 2000 really but um people like mr scruff um funky porcini cinematic orchestra amon tobin what was it that connected those artists at the time because on the face of it a lot of them are really different to each other so in your mind what was it that meant that these artists belonged on the same label They're inherently doing their own thing i think it's difficult to see that now because so many people have Xeroxed those right. blueprints. Um, you know, blueprints. So they inherently had a character that was about them, mm. you know. And I said, you have to add in the zeitgeist of the time and, you know, other things. I mean, you know, the classic story with the cinematic orchestra is that Jason worked for us and came in one day and said, I've made a record, you know, and it's a perfect record company story in many respects. It brings back you know, echoes of Motown records and things like that happening. So, the, the, you know, that was a... Who was working at Ninja Tune? Heads were working at Ninja Tune because they liked yeah. it. And being heads, they were doing... They weren't just liking it, they were doing their own thing. And Jason was one of those guys. So that worked out yeah. pretty well. I, I'd say um, that uh, particularly at that point, the, the sort of early days, if you like, of Ninja Tune, there was a, a strong common interest in hip-hop. Mm. And... That say that the the cultural power of hip hop, the excitement of it, and the sort of throw anything in attitude, that was a powerful sort of fuel source for all of us. So I think if you look at those artists at that time, they yes, they made very diverse music, but there was a love of hip hop underneath it, uniting it, um, mm. and a love of sampling. Yeah, yeah, but then you're you're already heading into the sort of '90s hip hop, which was a big thing, and it's like right, what fucking cool old dusty record that no one else has got their mitts on yet can we dig up loop up and stick a rap over which you know resulted <laughs> in some some great music as well and we were part of that as well although interestingly we sort of the uk suffered from there not being really any articulate rappers with their own voice at that time there'd been a few like the london posse who fed more off the kind of Jamaican thing rather than just trying to imitate America. But that was one of the reasons why we sort of did hip-hop without rap, mm. and that became called trip-hop, which I always quite liked as a term, actually. You know, it was some music journalist, apparently, that came up with it, but I thought it was a good term. It's like, yeah, that's hip-hop, <laughs> but we'll, we'll freak out on top. We can mix, take, take the journey anywhere we want by mixing any samples in that we want. And naturally, once we'd exhausted the considerable resources of James Brown and the JBs and... <laughs> the various clones of, as well, of which there were many, and that's kind of what Rare Groove was. Although John defined Rare Groove, so well, how can um, it's great to... No, what's it, John? The Michael Jackson won the classic. You know, Rare, Rare Groove is that rare record that has the groove. It, doesn't, it could be a number one record, mm. right? 
so it's not necessarily bad it's physical rarity but um sorry i've lost my point slightly but um yeah that that was a, a good period for sampling and digging and uh, then we moved na- naturally into sampling jazz records actually that was quite a significant step and it was jason cinematic orchestra that's kind of spearheaded that you know joyous ignorant rampage through jazz sampling which opened another door where did you guys fit in with the kind of club scene or electronic scene at the time like what did ninja tune represent in the kind of broader um rise of rave and idm and all of that stuff what was your what was your crowd who were your tribe they they haven't really changed that much i don't think over the uh, over the course of that time the same people that used to come to the warehouse parties that man i played at were still coming to the raves they were the same people but things did get more difficult because of the round sort of 93 ish they started to 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 separate out so if you played a hip-hop record main stage or a rave you probably have some problems <laughs> in terms of you know the dance floor not necessarily accepting that so there was a split and there was a period where you know us massive attack quite a lot of people were playing the second room the smaller room and not the main rooms or if we were booked into the main room they'd expect you to play house music yeah that became a problem so it was uncomfortable yeah but in a way we turned it to our advantage in a way it helped us define what we were doing because actually ninja Mm. kind of became the resistance the alternative to house music you know Mm. even though it meant that you weren't playing in the main room necessarily there was always a bunch of people that wanted something else and there was a space to do that and then john mentioned like massive attack made some incredible records that kind of moved rather brilliantly crossed that with vocals and a, a sensibility which could be pop and then that blew up mm. so then that kind of equalized out the power of house a little bit even though well i mean hip-hop is a major force adrian was saying that american hip-hop is the biggest single music market in the world which i didn't realize and that, that's that's now but um having been playing in quite a few different places around the world over the last 33 years it is astonishing to see the power of house how mm. you know, on the plus side one nation under a groove international get down together all let's jack our bodies to the beat terrific also can be a terrible monoculture and i think john and i and ninja reacted against that and felt that it had become rather whack and that you know we were hey we were fully down with house from the first time i heard jack your body Farley jackmaster funk those tracks records they were just amazingly raw and powerful and it's like yeah this sound is terrific but it didn't take long for it to get turned into us what you know mcdance we call it <laughs> and so we wanted to offer we we found a direction away from that and that there was enough people that would come along in, in on the different direction that sustained us and one of the things that you had at the time as well was your own club night stealth um, which I don't think I'd ever put this together before properly because I wasn't there at the time. Um, but it was at a venue called the Blue Note, which is kind of legendary multiple times over in, in music law now, I think. And, um, it was in Shoreditch, which again, probably at the time <laughs> was a little bit different to how it is now. Um, can you t- tell me a bit about stealth? I mean, what was the atmosphere like at, at the Blue Note? What was going on there? It was crazy I, the lovely thing in a way was that we we weren't expecting such a result really now, i remember us when we were going out flowering and and promoting the first night we were concerned that it was going to be empty you know it came to 
situation where, according to the phrase, that uh, I saw a, a sardine leave complaining that it was too packed. <laughs> and, you know, we, we turned away quite a lot of famous people, apparently. Not, again, more through naivety and not knowing who these people were. And I suppose pre the whole selfie and everything world, it, you know, you couldn't necessarily identify an off-duty superstar pop person. <laughs> um, so apparently we turned away a Rolling Stone at one point. Wow. So, yeah, but it was a great atmosphere inside, you know, jamming with four turntables, with Strictly Kev, with PC, Tom, Square Pusher coming down and playing live over beats that have been cut, you know, some crazy DJs, just great nights, really exciting. Three floors, lots of different music. Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, let's face it, when you do a party of any sort, you never know whether anyone's going to come. <laughs> so so it was like that at the beginning but suddenly it blew up to be one of the hottest tickets in town but it's interesting at that time you'd also got Anoki with Talvin Singh and you also got Metalheads with yeah. with Goldie all at the Blue Note so there were three independent really shit hot London scenes going off mm. at the same time and that was I think part of what when people woke up to the fact that here was a part of London that wasn't actually that expensive yet um, <laughs> well it is now <laughs> <laughs> Were the crowds at those nights potentially the same kind of people, or was it quite separate at the time? Yeah, mm. there were cross. There was a crossover crowd within that. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think sure. metalheads would probably have had more of a black crowd, but all the the crowds were quite mixed. And this is the strength, yeah. and is the strength of London. You know that it is a multi multi cultural, multi racial melting pot. Mm. and that can be very exciting and some great things have, have come out of that. I mean, Ninja Tune is a London phenomena, really. Two uh, ninjas who really ran stealth were Shane Solanke and yeah. Susie Green, and uh, I, you, you'd have to speak to them to get the real in-depth story about them. We, 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 they, they did the hard work of organising it all, and I think it was them who recommended that we should quit whilst we were ahead. John, you said it was <laughs> Shane who came up with the phrase, everything comes to a trend, right? Yeah, so I'm I think that sure that kind of sums up sums up what uh, happened with Stealth's Good to Quit whilst you're ahead. Another pillar of Ninja Tune throughout all of this, um, until only very recently, is Solid Steel. The thing about Solid Steel is that it's kind of lasted far beyond almost anything else in its entire scene. I think it's probably as an institution must be one of would have been one of the longest running institutions of any type of thing of a radio show of a club night or anything. But it was a radio show that started. I guess on Kiss, right? Yeah. And finished only a short time ago, even. Yeah, it's having a sabbatical at the moment. Oh, is it just a sabbatical? You know, okay. Well, get that and a holiday in the sun to relieve the arthritic <laughs> caused by too much scratching. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you end up doing it for so long? Why did you keep the interest for so long? How, how did that work? Because there's a lot of music to mix together. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I mean, you know, Matt still does the party. Well, Brought the Pirate TV back. I do a radio show on Soho Radio. It's the DJ in us. We can't not want to share shit that we find that we find exciting and interesting. Hmm. And you know, there's, there's so much good music about. But it was fine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you had some amazing guests over the years as well. Yeah, it's nice that that became a, a became a an institution, something that you know other DJs wanted to to be part of mm. journeys by dj when that we did the cold cut one there had been other ones but they were all just like pretty much boring house music mixed back to back in quite a linear way and uh the solid steel crew in its totality w wanted to show that mixing was not just about that 
and that you know there was a lot of mileage in that idea that saying it's not just about beat mixing some house music together it can go here it can go there and um like we say there's a lot of music out there to present to people and a lot of experimental hybrids that can be created in the lab and to see which one of them which of them work yeah you could also argue that we kind of created a safe space where djs that might have been known for playing drum and bass or techno could come and do a mix and play things that you know they loved and there's something rather lovely about some techno don saying that they liked foxtrot by genesis for example. <laughs> you know it meant that our guests could play what they want and that was the remit of the show in many respects and it was a kind of journey and mixing was also a major part of it but it mixing it in different ways mm. it didn't have to be pure beat mixing ambient mm. mixing or slurping as i like to mm. call it <laughs> slurping. Yeah, it's a good observation actually that um you know in a way we called that album let us play and john's my career is a continued kind of cry to be able to just do what we want musically and not be subject to the sort of barriers of the marketplace and the rules that get made the, the sort of traffic wardens of style who control too much of culture actually often with a, a yeah. vicious hand on the windpipe of human culture and it's like get off we just want to have fun here and freak out and as you say john you know many djs are known for a particular style and yearn to have that freedom to just show other sides of themselves so solid mm. steel provided that there is a frightening thing about expectation in clubs is a tyrannical thing and it takes a very strong-minded person you know andy weatherall for example to to take that on board and and shake it out and and manage to make a career within it and i you know i respect anybody that does it and so if we can make a little space where that can encourage more of that then you know i'm really happy that that can take place but now there's so many radio stations on the internet and so many people doing mixes and to a certain extent part of the reason to have a sabbatical and a rest and a thing was because of that we sort of feel like maybe we've actually managed to do that and open that up a bit and that is happening now mm. that obviously could change quite Quite. No, I don't think it will change. I think the jack's well and truly out of the box now. And the, you know, there's a lot more people making music. There's a lot more people DJing and mixing it up. There's a lot more availability of music as well. And those are broadly, they have their downsides, but they're broadly good things. So we can sit back for a little while. Mm. One thing that I want to include, which is very silly, and I hope you'll just tolerate, um, is some quickfire questions just to jazz it up. If Ninja Tune was an animal, what would it be? Armadillo. Yeah. That works, actually. If Ninja Tune was a menu item, what would it be? Cheese on toast. Mm. I'm contending with that. It would just be at the top of the menu. <laughs> just whatever's at the top of the menu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, would you rather be up early or out late? Both. I've had a few people say that, you know. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> That's what I do. I tend to go to bed a bit earlier these days. But... A bit. Would you rather be in the city or in the country? I refer you to my earlier answer. Well, you're talking to Colker. Yeah. One of us is in the city, one of us is in the country, so we can Perfect. Like, yeah. sit up. And what was the last record either of you bought? Frank Beyong, Anywhere Trouble. And that was actually recommended by John, who did Ooh. a rather cool list called, what was it called, John? Protect, Survive or? Protests. Yeah, I can't remember now what it was called. Mine was is Chicago Waves that's just coming out on International Anthem from Carlos Nino and Miguel Atwood Ferguson. 
Mm. And uh, quick mention for international album, cracking, cracking label. So the Ninja Tune universe has grown into other sub-labels. And I think Big Dada is perhaps the most notable of them um, for lots of reasons. Um, it was and is a, a home for UK hip-hop, I guess, and which is interesting in itself because that as a genre was always... An odd place. Yeah, it always was an underdog. And um, the label has also had um, several brushes with the Mercury Prize uh, in different ways. And I, I realised as well when I was researching that one of them was a nomination for Thai um, yes. upwards. Um, who yeah. R.I.P. completely shockingly died only um, last month, I think, from yeah. coronavirus. Yeah. And I was so floored by that. I used to see him around Brixton sometimes when I lived there for a bit. So actually, um, how would you describe Ty and the scene that he was coming from and how that sort of fed into the Big Dada world? Because I think it's a, a time that's maybe not all that well documented still. Articulate, conscious UK rap with something to say more than I've got big dick in a big car. <laughs> yeah. And organised. They organise their own shit, you know. Mm. Juice Aline, for example, is going strong in that independent UK hip-hop. It's still there. It's still, you know, still being overshadowed by various other pop genres. But, yes, yeah, it's, it's just a sad loss. It's funny. Um, I dug out recently a track we put out before Ninja Tune when we started a couple of other labels just as a... To, all you need to start a label is a record and a and a, a pen. But um, we put out this Black Radical Monsoon on To The Bone Records and had another track on it called B-Boys, B-Wise. And Black Radicals, this guy Felix from Tottenham that we met quite early on when we just soon after we started Cold Cut. And he was like the UK public enemy, actually. He was really forceful, articulate. And um, I learned a lot about black history and racism from talking to him. Uh, it was mm. a pretty good track. I dug it out and played it off YouTube the other day. And um, it's like, wow, there was a UK rap scene there, but it just didn't get the props um, that would have enabled. I think it's a pity. That it, but, you know, things take their time. I mean, you, you can draw a line between that and Young Fathers, for instance. So sometimes mm. things take quite a long time to ferment and grow and then suddenly break out. We've got a mention it for Roots Maneuver as well, who I think is a, a unique talent and one of the nation's top rap poets. And I think in a way he's defined Big Dada as as much as, as anyone. He's a unique figure. Do you want to um, say anything else about the kind of impact on the label to have someone like Roots Maneuver in the fold, who is, uh, you know, when you're dealing with mainly... I guess, kind of bedroom producers and kind of quiet people, in a sense, who are making instrumental music largely, to suddenly have voices must have been quite an interesting kind of separate channel. Much needed. Mm. Yeah. No, it was a, you know, proud, I think, that we gave space again there. Even the half the time, we didn't really know what we were doing. Will Ashen is an important name. Well, it was Will, Will started it, been. actually. It was Will's idea that Ninja should start a UK hip-hop label. Right. And, and a... a a, a label for black voices, actually. I got this book called Bomb the Suburbs by Upski, which is well worth a look at, saying, you know, if you're into black music, you need to support black people and black culture. And Big Dada was an attempt by Ninja Tune to try and, and do that and get that get that right. It is, it is an attempt. And, you know, we've had some, some good successes and some great artists like Rodney, like um, Young Fathers. Yeah, and many prizes. 
in fact. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know if we're that <laughs> great shakes in the, the prizes stakes, you know. It's, uh, it's not about prizes, really. It's about putting out no. great records and having supporting some great artists to have a platform. Mm. There's an unexpected hit in the middle of this, or a hit of sorts, which is the Mr. Scruff track, Get a Move On. Oh, yeah. Yeah, now, an interesting experience. It's not necessarily a hit in a typical sense, but it was everywhere. And it's this very curious, jazzy, hip-hop-y sort of sampledelic thing um and it but it was huge for a while so i'm interested in what happened with that particular track and also about what it says about an indie label's business model essentially and how possible it is to build up something serious for yourself economically through things like tv and sinks and stuff like that what was the story of that track well it's one of those beautifully succinct creations from mr scruff that effectively has two hooks, get a move on, and uh, and the lovely riff, you know, and both which are samples. And there was an issue there straight away because it proved very popular and those samples we had to negotiate quite significantly <laughs> uh, <laughs> with, with Moon Dog and the estate. It was a difficult thing because you could have that could have killed that record because basically you would have ended up having to pay out more than you would have earned. And you know, I, I heard I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'd heard rumours about Norman Cook, Fatboy Slim, with um, Lindy Layton and Duff Be Good to Me, and the fact that they had so many samples on that that they got to the point where they were almost paying out more money than they were earning. <laughs> so. That's the thing that can happen in those cases. But we managed to come to a, a sensible agreement with with the two sampling parties and actually got them involved and got them to help, which is always something that's worth trying to look at to be positive. And you know, another philosophy perhaps that we have at Ninja is that if you're going to have a cake and you're going to slice it up, much better for everybody to have a smaller slice of a bigger cake, mm. if that makes sense to you. And sort of trying to follow that, ninja maxim to a certain extent yeah. so not being greedy not trying to own all that shit trying to do you know deals where everybody gets a chance to earn something out of it so that was quite an important way of viewing that and it's very easy for a small independent label as we were very small really at the time that that took off to be finished by something mm. like that because then there would be a lot of pressure to step up i.e. spend more money on connecting it on pressing more vinyl on promoting it on trying to cross it over onto national radio and so on and so forth so all you know the, the trajectory there of spend to make that work capacity etc 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 so uh, it's a different difficult balancing game for example you could think you've got a hit record radio one says yeah we're going to playlist it next week brilliant 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 but and then they put in a series of conditions or then they don't actually playlisted and you've kind of stepped up and then you're left with you know, a warehouse full of records that you might not necessarily be able to sell. Yeah. So things like that you need to navigate quite carefully and there's plenty of different scenarios that can play out. Um, but it's finding that balance really between giving a record campaign as much as you can possibly give it but also dealing with the vagaries of the shifting sands of selling music mm. selling art and it's an example of a track that was heard not just in musical context as well right but on tv and in backgrounds yeah. and i wondered if 
sync and licensing and all that type of stuff is perhaps quite important to Ninja Tune at this stage? It was and still mm. is very important. And, you know, again, we have an advantage in many ways because we're often the, not so much now, I don't think. I'm not quite sure of the exact figures, but in those days, we we had the rights to the both sides of the story, the recording rights and the publishing rights, which meant that if a, an advertising company came to us and said, we want this track in our latest commercial, we could probably get back to them that afternoon because you just phone the artist up and go, are you all right with this? And they go, yeah, sure, that's that's a good one. And we go back to them and say, yeah, done and dusted, here's the agreement. And the industry liked that because, you know, they, they, they turn around their commitments, all of the rest of it. So we discovered that that was an advantage. So, you know, we tried to work on that and, 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 and still are working on trying to make that work for us. And yeah, we, you know, we've had music across all sorts of different television programs, including, I think, Flog It, which I'm most proud Flog of. Flog It. Brilliant. Yeah. An antique oh, show. That's an achievement. Wonderful. Not antiques ratio yet, but I can live in yeah. <laughs> Um, Thinking about the sort of timeline of British electronic music, uh, and this is skewed a little bit because it's uh, it's where I came in, but around 2010-ish or sort of after dubstep particularly, I really felt that there was this sort of invigorated time period where a lot of genres were kind of cross-pollinating again. You had dubstep bleeding out and other people kind of looking to dubstep and a lot of crossover um and one of the artists who sort of emerged from that period a bit is floating points who although he's not necessarily exactly attached to those uh genres he he was there and following those sort of threads and is now part of the ninja tune stable um with his album crush from last year which is i think probably his peak (laughs) achievement in many ways and that's someone who's achieved a lot already um he's also a big record collector so i guess that's another bit of kinship um but can you tell me anything about floating points and how an artist like that fits into the kind of modern ninja tune the contemporary vision for the label i think very much what i alluded to earlier in the conversation about artists is that he's he's his own person he's very that's floating points you hear that music you recognize it in the same way that you might recognize Fortet. They are, you know, you could argue that they're brothers or the same yeah, family yeah. Or, or whatever, but they're very different individuals. And they're individuals is the key word. They're both very individual, very talented people as well. So, you know, we've always felt that that's important. He merges those different strands very well and creates something that is entirely, in my opinion, people probably disagree but it's entirely new even though its heritage is identifiable and its journey in terms of influence is identifiable it's a classic music development in some respect. Mm. Looking through some of the other recent signings some of the most recent signings some of the more recent ones that I've enjoyed include uh, Abra, uh, Mary Davidson, Peggy Goo, Jada G, Park Hygiene. Yeah. There's something in common with all of these uh, particular artists, which is that they're all women. And there weren't that many before, which is, no. I don't think, a Ninja Tune issue. I think a broader, a broader issue. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it does feel like a sort of conscious decision to sort of shake up the roster a little bit. That is quite a quite an intake. It, was there any kind of like thinking behind that to to address that disparity? 
Yeah, I think we're always trying to look at those issues as you should be on all different levels, really. And there was a movement, there still is a movement, of women having a voice. And, you know, they've not been heard for a long time. I'm sure they feel deeply, as as is understandable, that they're still not being heard. But, you know, like with Big Data, we wanted to try and attempt to open up some space for them. I could easily say, oh, it's not because they're women, you know, they just make good music and things, (laughs) various quite glib comments (laughs) like that, I suppose. Uh, But they are fantastic at what they do, but they are part of a movement, Mm. a part of like Black Lives Matter is a movement. You can't deny that. And and so it should be. And it's it's a new generation and a generation that's always struggled to get heard in, in particularly in electronic music. You know, I think that's important that we we try and support that as much as we can. Right. And there's obviously been a huge shift in the sort of demographics of DJs. I mean, there are far, far, far more women DJs than there were when I first started writing about music. Like, the ratio yeah. is unimaginable, really. And I think it takes a little while longer maybe for that to trickle down to production. You know, obviously, it's slightly easier yeah. to start DJing and then then be a producer and I, I do think mm. there's a sort of a slow turnover where that's all changing it also has a lot to do with access to technology I guess um, so to loop back to some technological things there have been various other recent sort of technological efforts that that have come from the Ninja Tune stable the there was the app does the app the app was a while ago but it still exists doesn't it the music making app Absolutely. yeah it started it started off as Ninja Jam <laughs> so that was a free app that you could download both android and iphone and still available got a bunch of samples in it you can have a good old play with it you can buy more samples in in app and we wanted to develop a professional version of that so this is matt's baby he's been driving the whole thing (laughs) and um so now we've got jam pro so it's got a lot more functionality, a lot more whiz-bang. You can do a lot with it. Actually, some of the tracks on a new project that we've been working on, Keller Kettler, they were developed using that app. So it's something that, you know, it's sort of the research and development side of Ninja Tune. Um, again, I think it's really important to do that. It's developing ideas that Matt and I have been involved and excited and interested in since we started and the reason why we started. So it's just taking that further and, I think it's a lot of fun. I could do an advert plug here, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you've been doing some hardware as well. You've been, you've got a hardware effects unit. Tell me about that. Zen Delay. So, you know, toys, we again alluded to, are good and being able to mess about again. And it's funny because, you know, there's such a flow and fluctuate. And so, you know, a lot of electronic music effects went in computer you know, hardware things weren't so so many. And Matt and I, we started off finding cheap, shitty hardware stuff that nobody else wanted to make music <laughs> out of. And so, you know, we wanted to have a crack at make something that involves some of the things that we enjoyed. And, you know, being able to dub shit up and mess about with it is important. So developed that with Erica since, driven by then. Got quite an old school look to it, but it rocks. One of the things that's concerning me a lot at the moment as a uh a music listener and as a writer is the overall consolidation of power in what are essentially tech companies like Apple and Google and to an extent Spotify and the way that they also collaborate with the big major labels. And I'm curious to know what you think will be the role of an independent record label in the future. Yes. (laughs) 
it's sort of back office in some respects. I think it's going to move to that and and guidance and you know there is always going to be channels that are going to be closed to artists so you know as much as spotify or apple music or any of these conglomerates want to say that they're open and available for everybody they're not and so you know a future for a record label is trying to navigate path between that sort of at that tectonic plate effectively Try and make that work for the artist and to break through, you know, find ways and means of breaking through the noise, which is constant. And so raising those artists above that noise and trying to get, you know, recognition. All of those things are possible by the artists themselves, you know, self-release through Bandcamp, for example. So but I still think there's an important place for a label in, in guiding the culture um, of, of a certain genre. Mm. You know, it's interesting. What is the role of a label? It's a huge question at the moment. Ninja ask ourselves that question, mm. and you know there aren't any obvious answers. I'd observe though that one of the reasons why we started Ninja Tune is so that us as artists could be in control of our own destiny, and I think mm. now the scope for artists to do that is much greater, and so many artists mm, are going to do that and cut out the middleman. That's effectively what we did by running our own, starting our own label, is to cut out the middleman who we didn't trust because we had bad experiences like that. And now people can do that and that's great. You know, there's artist services now. Some companies set up just doing that. They're not fully fledged labels. They provide artist services. That's got its role as well. I think Ninja Tune's a conspiracy of music lovers and that's a legible identity to fans and musicians and we attract people that, that like that idea. Um, and I think because of our heritage and in fact we've been going quite a long time then we'll we'll manage to eke out and survive and evolve which is what we've been doing you know you could a friend of mine said uh, recently they've always been a big ninja tune fan and they really like the new direction well i wasn't necessarily <laughs> aware that there is a new direction to me we're just doing what we've always been doing but actually since adrian been um taking more of a leadership role at label adrian kemp we have stepped up i think we've improved as a company it, you know sometimes when i catch sight of the the systems that we have what we have to do when a record is released now the different circuits that have to all fire um it blows my mind but i think the <laughs> only reason we're still in business is because we have evolved and we have really refined our game i think to a certain extent ninja tune we, we've we're other labels and artists notice what we're doing and so there's a bit of a sort of elder leadership role in a way which is just you just get by hanging around for a long time for example you know there's so much we could still cover in this conversation of you know the world in case you haven't noticed is hurtling towards environmental collapse <laughs> that's really what we should be talking about amongst uh, other serious matters um, rather than ancient history of Ninja Tune. But, you know, we are, as a label, we're trying to get it right. We've installed solar panels down the whole of the office building in the last few months. Um, Pete's on the uh, Music Declares Emergency industry-wide sort of organisation to try and do stuff. We're constantly looking to improve our practice and get things right there. These, it might not be answering directly what can a label do for artists, what is the reason for a label, but... In terms of the identity of the label, they're, they're important to us and it's something that we discuss a lot and are trying to evolve and get right on a lot of different fronts all the time and hopefully that will feed into our uh, health and survival as a label generally. Yeah, I would love to talk to you about that specific issue for ages, but I won't. I'll let you go. Um, thank you both. <laughs> thank you very much. Peace. <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to Relevant Parties from Carhartt Work in Progress. If you want to dive into more music from the labels in this series, check out the Relevant Parties playlist on Spotify. You can find the link in the show notes. And remember, you can subscribe to Relevant Parties so that you never miss an episode. It's available wherever good podcasts are found. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to know what you think. So thanks for listening and join me next time for more stories behind the world's best record labels. 